they just leave it? Yep. previous registration so we have a big enough room and sure enough we don't so we'll work on that for even next week the idea is to be able to get you a table so you can take notes um, I know that our speaker tonight doesn't need any introduction but I'm going to give it to him anyway Jack I didn't realize I didn't think about this until the day that uh, almost to the day uh, 40 years ago I met Jack Cottrell because I came to Cincinnati to be in graduate school there were two things I wanted at graduate school. I wanted to get a degree in education. The second was a degree in theology. So he's a big reason why I moved to Cincinnati. Then a couple years after that, uh, White Oak was looking for a minister. And he said to Marshall Hayden, well, what about this guy named Sean Weiler? I think he rused that day that he encouraged me to come over here. <laughs> so Jack is one of the reasons I'm here two at White Oak for the first time around and then I came back in 2010 as a senior minister. Uh, Jack has had a profound uh, he's just had a profound effect on my life and I'm sure there are others of you in here through his teaching and his encouragement and about a year ago Barbara and I were talking about it. about a year ago he was in the hospital and we were praying over him and in December uh, he underwent his first uh, his cancer surgery and today he's cancer free. We just started thinking about And I know the regiment is he'll continue to get uh, CAT scans and so on and so forth, but we are just praising God. Uh, because when I put this series together a year ago, I thought, Jack has got to be here. And then all the cancer stuff came, and then, then he was doing better and better and better. I said, can't call Jack and get him here, because we want to hear what he has to say about Saved by Grace. So opportunities you have, you can uh, pick up one of his books, Saved by Grace, in the back. They're $8.50. If you don't have $8.50, Kent will pay it for you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we gave everybody an outline. If you didn't get one of his outlines, please make sure that you get that. Jack asked me earlier, he said, how long do, I, do you want me to speak? Uh, I said, well, just cover the material. He said, you know this class, it takes three hours to cover this, these three pages. Um, so he won't quite do that. But uh, Jack has, has had profound influence on the Christian church, particularly the independent branch of the Christian church, as he has taught and challenged us um, of many of my biblical uh, positions. I, I take back to the classes where we'd hear the arguments and, and the conversations. Uh, Jack, Jack was one of, the, uh, one of the professors for my orals in the, in the MDiv, which means it's also his fault that I have an MDiv. Uh, because he passed me. Thank you again, Jack. I've said that several times. And I, that $20 a month still comes to your house. <laughs> Gotta remember I graduated in 82. That was a lot of money in, in 82. But uh, thankful he's here. I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're just going to let you uh, just sit at the feet of this master. God, we thank you for this moment. I thank you that Jack is, uh, is healed. Lord, you've made him cancer-free. You have done things that even the doctors did not anticipate. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for your healing. We thank you for your love for him. And thank you that he's been a spokesperson, that you have used him uh, as a light in, uh, in so many conversations over the years. Thank you for all the students that he's, that he's taught for his influence throughout your kingdom. And Father, tonight uh, we just ask that you would, uh, as you open his mouth and as he teaches us, that uh, we would hear well the things that you have for us. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jack will speak for about an hour or so, then we'll do about a half an hour of uh, Q&A, and uh, let's, let's go to it. Thanks, Jack. Thank you very much, Rick, for that uh, undeserved introduction. And I'm going to talk to my wife about where that $20 a month has gone. <laughs> That's my wife, Barbara, sitting there in the black and white, right in the middle. Um, appreciate the invitation to come and speak. I didn't anticipate this many people. Uh, so if I kind of pass out in the middle out of you know, just awe, uh, uh, just give me a minute to wake back up. Yes, uh, grace is my favorite subject. Um, I think I've written about three books on that subject. And the one that you are possibly using here, Saved by Grace, just so you know, it's the cheapest book of all that I've written. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think I've written about 40 books, and this is one of the most recent ones, and it's uh, some of the most uh, easily understood material on the subject of grace, and I hope that you'll make good use of it. Uh, I understand that you're really studying the book of Romans uh, week by week, and I'm just here to toss a few things in as you go along. And I was told that this lesson should uh, address two or three of the chapters in the book, as well as the main ideas in Romans 1 through 8. Uh, so that's, that's how this particular outline was constructed. The uh, book of Romans is about the gospel. Uh, on the first page of your outline, I've printed some scripture references from Romans. I call them key verses in the first six chapters. But the, the first passage there, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1, gives you like an introduction to Romans. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from uh, faith to faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you know that the word gospel means good news. And the good news is how sinners are saved. And the answer is by grace. Now, what, what makes this so hard to understand anyway? Uh, I'll tell you why it's so difficult. Uh, for people to understand this, even people who have come out from a church background. It just is not uh, very clearly understood. And one reason for that is because most of the world has already assumed a totally different answer to that question about how sinners are saved. They've already come to a different position, and they've decided that just by looking around, uh, that there's something really wrong with the world. Just about every worldview that I've studied, every religion and philosophy, they, they know that th something is wrong. And they don't always get the idea right, but they say something is wrong, and they try to figure out how to resolve that wrongness about the world. 
And most of, of the philosophies and all of the religions have decided that uh, whatever it is they've concluded is wrong with the world, we human beings can fix it ourselves. And that is the assumption with which people approach the whole problem of sin and uh, the, the question of salvation. And there are a lot of versions of that. Let me give you just one version, just a real quick summary here of one version of this. It's the uh, Muslim religion. The Muslim religion teaches that on the judgment day, if you are a believer at all, if you've professed any kind of belief, you will be judged with a balance scale. And in that balance scale, all your good works will be put on one side and all your bad works on the other. And that will determine whether or not you're saved. Actually, I, I, I Xeroxed something from the internet just today, so I just want you to know I'm, I've been working for weeks and weeks and weeks on this. Um, but this Muslim website says, the scale exclusive to weighing good and bad deeds in the hereafter is real, and it will be set up. And as for those whose scale is heavy, that is with good works, they are successful. And as for those whose scale is light, they're those who lose their souls because they have just not believed our revelations. The pan which should weigh heavy is the one in which belief and good deeds are put. And the ones whose belief and good deeds weigh heavier on the scale are the ones who will be successful, namely who will be saved. Now what that's saying is, in the final analysis, you save yourself by doing the, uh, enough good deeds. It's, it's amazing how many people in the world, how many religions in the world, believe something very similar to that. And what I found is this, in reading from Christian backgrounds, Christian writings, and from talking with students uh, coming to uh, my classes, we have a lot of Christians who think in the same way. Because this, this is the background that, that of the world in general. This is the way people think. Let me just ask you the question. Do you think that in our lives we ought to do, do what's fair? Do you think we ought to be treated fairly? This is a common understanding, and it's, it's correct when it comes to uh, human things. But people have read that over into religion, and they think, well, that means the judgment day should be fair, and that when we go before God on the day of judgment, he should give us what is fair. And, and we've taken that whole approach to our Christian living and our Christian faith. Well, let me tell you this, if you want God to be fair with you on the day of judgment, be prepared for eternity in hell. Because that's what sinners deserve. The whole concept of grace is the very opposite of fair. When I was young, I learned that grace means, uh, well, let me see if I can remember now. Um, Oh, no, wait a minute. Uh, 
favor. I can't think of the uh, adjective that goes with it. Unmerited. Unmerited. That's it. See, you learned, you learned it too. Unmerited favor. Oh, no. Oh. Well, it didn't take me long to recognize that that's not really what grace is. Because unmerited favor, and I, I had a preacher that I heard in chapel one day give this illustration. He says, oh, I was in my pocket and had a pocket full of quarters, and I walked around and gave everybody here a quarter. Would that be grace? He said, no, it wouldn't. Isn't that unmerited favor? Well, yeah, that's unmerited favor. You didn't do anything to deserve that quarter. But grace, he says, is the opposite, getting the opposite of what you deserve. And I learned uh, something there. And I, I kept teaching it that way, too. So if, I, if you didn't get that point, then you didn't get it all yet, see? <laughs> the opposite of what you deserve. And then I had a student one day when I was teaching this. He came up with this. At least he told me he came up with it. I guess he did. He says, I know what you're saying. Grace is, now get this, favor bestowed when wrath is owed. Favor bestowed when wrath is owed. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. But God in his grace offers us salvation. So this is what we're exploring here uh, um, in Romans, especially the first eight chapters, Paul has, has um, put together all of these non-Christian ideas about how to be saved, how to be right with God, put it that way. And he's lumped all of these ideas about people trying to figure out how to save themselves with their own efforts. And he puts them under one heading. And that heading is law. And law, of course, is fair. Law is, uh, means that you get what you deserve. That's the essence of law. But most of the world approaches God and seeks salvation in terms of law. In the book of Romans, the first eight chapters, you'll see that word coming up a lot, and especially another word, phrase, works of law. And I'm going to call attention to that several times, works of law. So here are the, uh, the content of Romans 1 to 8, which is my assignment for the night. Here's what Paul is doing in that whole section. He is contrasting the two main ways that sinners are trying to be right with God. Because there's really just two ways to, to uh, try to be right with God. One of them works, but the other one doesn't. And more people, many, many, many more people are trying to be saved by the one that doesn't work than by the one that does. What are these two ways? Well, if you go back to your list of scriptures, we read the first one that's listed there. Look at the last one. 
Romans 6, 14. This is the title of my lesson here tonight. The last half of this anyway. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's the point of Romans. You're not under law. You're under grace. That sums it up. Saved by grace. And by that he means the grace system. And we'll talk more about that. But here's the deal. It's just, it's important to know what it means to be saved by grace. And we're, we'll talk about that. But folks, it's just as important to know what it means to try to be saved by law. Because this is what most people in the world are trying to do. And we need to be able to show them it won't work. And especially we as Christians need to know this. Because as I said a while ago, uh, many, many Christians... Well, I, let me just tell you the truth. Uh, I started to Bible college in uh, 1955. And I never learned anything about grace all during my Bible college years. It just was not something that we thought about or talked about in the restoration movement. And I hope that's changed. Or my whole life has been wasted. Uh, because this has been one of my main themes is to try to change our minds about how we're saved by grace. Because we have we had been kind of uh, infiltrated by this works of law idea, salvation by law keeping, salvation by how good you are. God will save you if you have more good works and more bad works. And as soon as you commit a sin, ah, you're lost and you're gone. You got to make up for that in some way. This this was the uh, assumption that I was exposed to in any case. So it's important to see that contrast between law and grace. If you look at in that list of scriptures, chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By works of law, no flesh, that is no human being, will be justified, forgiven, saved, in God's sight by works of law and when Paul talks about works of law he's not talking about any particular law he's talking about whatever law code you go by which for us would be the New Testament law code nobody can be saved by how good they are that's what it means to say by works of law no flesh will be justified in his sight I, I confess a terrible wrong here I left out one of the main scriptures when I typed this up, and that was Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28 should be there. You want to just write that in the margin. But 3.28, Paul says again, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. That is, things you do in response to your law. 
that God has given you. We're, we're saved, we're justified by faith in what Jesus has done, not in what we're able to do in reference to the law commandments that we're living under. Well, I've already used too much time, but I'm going to try to uh, explain here these two ideas of law and grace. And the first thing here is God, law, and human beings. And my point is to try to, to, to help you understand what Paul means when he says, you are not under law. And that is as important for you to understand as you are under grace. So first of all, you're not under law. Where do we start? We start with God and we start with creation. We go back to uh, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And later it talks about creating human beings in his own image. And if you want to know who you are, if somebody asks you, who are you? What are you? What, what is your identity? That's a big deal these days, identity. I, I usually say every human being, well, no, yeah, yeah, every human being is at least two things. Every human being is, first of all, a creature, a created being, created by God. Second, every human being is a sinner. Every one of us shares these two characteristics. Everybody in the world, every human being shares those. We're creatures and we're sinners. Christians have a third identity. We're also saints. And I won't go into that, but the New Testament talks about that a lot. But your first identity, the most inherent and primary uh, part of your essence is you're a creature made in God's image. He created us in his image so that we could have eternal fellowship with him. And that's how it began in Genesis 1 and 2. When Adam and Eve were first created, uh, they were made in his image. They had no sin. They were holy. Uh, they had fellowship with God. I don't know how long that lasted. Uh, we don't, won't get into that, but uh, they were created for the purpose of having fellowship with God for eternity. How would they maintain that fellowship with God? Uh, because it was up to them to maintain it. They had free will. They could use their free will and lose that fellowship with God, which they actually did in chapter 3. But what did they do to lose that fellowship with God? What they did was sin against the law of God. Law. Ah, there's the problem. The law. As... Uh, What's his name? Pee Wee Herman. As Pee Wee Herman said in my favorite movie, uh, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> yeah. The law. Well, Paul has a different view of that. He says the law is good. It's holy. So uh, the, the problem's not the law. It was breaking the law that was the problem. And Adam and Eve broke the law and lost their fellowship with God. But they did have law. 
This is one of the fundamental chords that unite us in this eternal relationship with the Creator, and that is He gives us law. We have law. We connect with Him by obeying His law. I give you two scripture references there. Isaiah 33, 22, and James 4, verse 12. Now, we don't often think of God like this, but both of these passages, listen, uh, Isaiah says, Yahweh is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. He's our lawgiver. And James 4, verse 12 says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Lawgiver. God is our lawgiver. And he made us in his image. Not so that we could share in giving law with him, but he made us, listen, to be law keepers. That's part of who we are, to be law keepers. Now, the next issue, the next point on your outline is what does law contain? What are the parts of law? I'm not going to go very far into this, but law has two parts. It has commandments and it has penalties. The commandments of the law are what we usually think of. Um, the list of all the commandments we ought to obey as creatures made in God's image is what we would call our law code. I use the term law code a lot because God's our lawgiver. He gives us law codes to go by and it's our obligation to obey every commandment in our law code. But we could actually identify three main law codes, and this is in your outline. The first law code we call the moral law. That's not to say the others are immoral, but that name is just attached to this. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, when he talks about the law written on the heart. And he's actually talking here about the Gentiles which is a, the way people in Paul's day thought about the pagan world, the unbelieving world, the non-Jewish world who did not know the true God. They still knew God's law, even if they never heard of Yahweh, even if they never heard of Israel, even if they never heard of the Bible or Moses' law. They knew the law of God in its basic commandments of the moral life because it was written on their hearts. Actually, it's written on your heart, too, and my heart. It's part of what it means to be made in God's image. We have an internal awareness of what's right and wrong. And we also have a conscience that tells us how to use that right and wrong. And it tells us that there are things such as right and wrong. So the moral law is written on our hearts, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Adam and Eve had that as soon as they were created. Uh, pagans have that still today. Everybody in this room has that. That's part of our law code. In the Old Testament, God gave a special law code to the Jewish nation. Gave it through Moses. We call it the law of Moses, uh, the Mosaic law. That applied to the Jews and the Jews only up until Jesus came and died on the cross and started a new covenant. 
So the law of Moses applied only to the Jews and only between Mount Sinai when it started and the coming of Jesus. There's no more law of Moses. Not even Jews are supposed to obey the law of Moses today because it came to an end when the old covenant ended. What, what, what law are we under? Do we have a law code we're supposed to obey? The answer is yes. Where do you find it? Well, you find it in your heart to start with. There's also teaching in the Old Testament that still applies to today. You see, here's the deal. The Old Covenant is not the same as the Old Testament writings. The Old Covenant is something you read about in the Old Testament writings. The Old Testament writings are still God's Word that applies to everybody. Not the Law of Moses part, but there's a lot of teaching uh, in the Old Testament that's not part of the Law of Moses. I'm not going to go into that. But that's part of our law code. But the biggest part of our law code, the part we use the most, is what the New Testament teaches about right and wrong. The commandments that we're supposed to obey. Now, you're studying Romans. Uh, you're going to come ultimately, uh, unless you're long-winded like me, the teachers, you're going to come ultimately to uh, Romans 13, uh, let me see, 12. When you get to Romans 12, 12, 13, 14, and part of 15, that's Paul telling you how to act, giving you law commandments to live by. And his other writings, he has a lot of law to go by. So there's plenty of law in the New Testament. We have, I, I saw this once, I don't know how accurate it is. Some preacher sat out and read the New Testament and counted every commandment that applies to us Christians. Every commandment in the New Testament that would be part of our law. He said, and I don't, like I say, I don't know how accurate this is because I never tried it. He said there's over a thousand commandments. Over a thousand commandments. Man, suppose every day when you got up, you went through a checklist of your, how am I doing on obeying my law? Well, if you did that, you wouldn't have to worry about sinning because it would take you all day just to go through your checklist. <laughs> well, this is part of what we do when we study the Bible, though. We're looking for what God wants us to do. That's the law. That's our law code. In addition to those commandments are the penalties. And there's really only one penalty uh, as far as the, the major law codes are concerned, and that's eternity in hell. So how does law work as a way of uh, being right with God? This, this is what comes up. This is what we're leading up to. How does law work? Remember that part of our very nature is to be law keepers. And wh why did God build this law into us anyway? Why does he give us all these laws to obey? And, and how does it work? I give you a list of four things there. First of all, everybody has some knowledge of the law of God. We know some of the law. Uh, some know more than others. Some have more law than others. Uh, some of it's innate within us. Some of it we learn by being taught. Number two, every human being is 100% obligated to obey every law 
he or she can and does know about. This would be every law that uh, the Old Testament teaches that still applies as a moral law. Uh, it would apply to all these New Testament commandments that God is giving us, showing us how to be holy as He is holy. So uh, we're obligated 100%. This obligation, listen to me, this obligation to obey your law code never changes. It has nothing to do with whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a human being, you're obligated to obey the law code that applies in this new covenant age. It's, God's law is grounded in the creation, not in redemption. Law is who we are. Now the question is, can a person be right with God? Can a person enter heaven through law-keeping? Now, my answer is this. It's kind of strange. Theoretically, yes, theoretically, a person can be right with God through law-keeping. That leads to number three. How, did, how is that possible? Well, just keep all the laws. Just obey every law that applies to you in the Bible and in your heart. And point three says, it is necessary to maintain 100% obedience to every knowable or known law in order to remain in fellowship with God. One sin against one law. And law no longer works. That sounds extreme, but that, the Bible teaches that. James 2, verse 10 says, if you keep every law except one, and you break it in just one point, you are as guilty as if you'd broken them all. Man, sinless perfection is how you can be right with God by law. Hmm. Well, let's say we are obeying God's law. What's another word for obedience to God's law? Uh, point E. On to point E. Law as the measure of righteousness. I don't think I've used that word yet tonight, have I? Righteousness. Righteous. Righteousness. One of my biggest problems is righteousness is one of the longest words in the Bible that I wanted to write down and talk about. So I've had to learn to abbreviate RTS, that's righteous. RTNS, that's righteousness. So that's for you in case you want to write something down about this. <laughs> righteousness is a key word in Romans. Uh, if you go back and look at that list of scriptures on page one, you see how often the word righteousness occurs. Uh, for example, Paul says in the very first passages there, verses there, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. And he goes on to talk about uh, the righteous man shall live by faith. There, but then he says, and this is the sad part, there's none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 21, now apart from law, 
the righteousness of God is manifested. And he goes on with other references to the righteousness of God. What, what does righteousness mean? I won't go into the details, but when, when it's applied to human beings, it simply means this. Satisfying the requirements of the law. That's what it means to be righteous. And righteousness is obedience to the law of God. Point number two, God demands and requires that every human being be righteous. I'll give you two passages there. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God? So you better be righteous or you won't be in heaven. The other passage there, 2 Peter 3.13 says, We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, I can't explain too strongly here how important it is that we be righteous. And righteousness means obedience to the law. So what does it take to be righteous? It means to be perfectly obedient, sinless, this puts us in a pretty bad shape. Righteousness is absolutely required to go to heaven, be in eternal fellowship with God. But what does Paul say? He says, this, this is important, it's one of the verses here, Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none righteous. Now, there is another way to be righteous, which is going to become very important. What did I say is the meaning of righteousness? Satisfying the requirements of the law. But there, remember this, there's two parts to the law. One part's commandments. To be righteous, according to the commandments, you'd have to obey them all. What's the other part of the law? What? Penalty. penalty. Yeah, the other part of the law is the penalty. This is what you get if you don't obey the law. Well, okay. Satisfying the requirements of the law. What if you could satisfy the requirement for penalty? Hmm. Want to take that chance? Want to try that? Want to, uh, want to satisfy, want to be righteous in reference to the penalty of the law? How do you do that? What does the penalty uh, say for those who break God's commandments? How long does it take? How long is hell? Forever. So if you want to be righteous it, by the commandments, you, it's too late. If you want to be righteous by the penalty, satisfying the requirement for penalty, you spend eternity in hell. And you'd be righteous. Which doesn't really help you very much. But I want to tell you this. That's the most important thing you can remember about tonight's lesson. Let me just go ahead and say it. I, I, I'm not going to have time to cover everything here. 
But the, uh, the idea of righteousness as requirement for, for eternal fellowship with God, there, there are really two sources of righteousness. There's human righteousness, which is what we've been talking about. But there's something else that Paul talks about. What does he say in that very first uh, verse that's quoted there? There's two verses. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel something is revealed. What is it? The righteousness of whom? The righteousness of God. Ah, look down under uh, chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. You know what grace is? You can sum it up in one word. Well, three words. The righteousness of God. Grace is a gift. And the gift that is at the heart of grace is the righteousness of God. How is that? Does God look at his own nature and say, hmm, here's some righteousness. I think I'll just share my righteousness with you. Nope. Here's the way it works. Works through Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. God the Son. The Logos. And he comes to earth. And you could say it this way accurately. He comes to earth to establish the righteousness of God that God can share with us. How does Jesus in his own being uh, set forth the righteousness of God? First thing you would probably think of is, well, he obeyed all the commandments of the law that applied to him. Well, yeah, he was perfectly righteous in reference to the commandments of the law. Is that the righteousness of God that he shares with us? Before you answer, I'll tell you what it is. No! He doesn't share his own obedience, his perfect obedience. Because he was a man and he needed that for himself. He was perfectly righteous as a human being, which every human being ought to be. But he did that so that he could go the next step. Because Jesus was righteous in both ways. Both in reference to the commandments, obeying them all that applied to him. But he was also righteous in reference to the penalty of the law. And this is what Romans 3, 21 to 26 is all about. That's the longest passage, but if you want to look at that, Romans 3, 21 to 26. It says, now apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament has things to say about this, but it's, it's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, what's another word for justified? Forgiven. To be justified means having your sins forgiven. Being forgiven as a person. To be justified, being justified as a gift by His grace. Let me, let me tell you what justified means. Justified is a legal term. It's a term that would be used in a court of law where uh, an accused sinner or a criminal would be standing in front of a judge. And the criminal is not just accused, he's guilty. And the judge is looking at this guilty criminal, this guilty sinner. And the judge knows all about him. He knows he's guilty. And the judge looks him in the eye and he says to this guilty sinner, No penalty for you. What do you think the sinner says? Hallelujah. <laughs> well, you know what the judge just did? He just justified that man. Because I say it's a man. It could have been a woman. And not to be uh, sexist here. But anyway, it's a man, and the man was a, d a dirty sinner, so let's say it was a man. Um, <laughs> to be justified means God our judge and you may remember that Isaiah and James both says God's not only our lawgiver, he's our judge. He judges how well we are going according to the law. God the judge looks directly at us sinners. And this would be right now. He's looking at you right now as a sinner. And he is saying these words. No penalty for you. No penalty for you. And what are you saying? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what it means to be justified. Romans 8.1 puts it like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why in Christ Jesus? Because Christ Jesus has already taken your condemnation on himself and paid it himself. That's what Jesus was doing when he came to earth. As Paul goes on in this passage, uh, we're justified, pronounced, no penalty for you through the redemption that was in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, and here's a key word, a propitiation. Not a word we use very often. But it applies to Jesus because it means somebody who takes away the wrath that we deserved. Taking away the wrath that we deserved. That's Jesus as a propitiation 
through faith in his blood. That's the way that should be translated. It's not the way uh, uh, many Bibles translate it, but he is our propitiation through faith in his blood. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he could be just, and that's just another word for righteous, English word, so that he could be righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's the difference between law and grace? Under law, the only way to be justified is by your own righteousness. Your own perfect obedience to the commands. But under grace, there's another way to be justified. And what is that? The righteousness of God. And Paul says at the very beginning of Romans, that's what, that's what the gospel is all about. In the gospel, there's revealed the righteousness of God, which comes through Jesus Christ. Here's the deal about this uh, Romans 6.14. You are not under law. I, I'm not sure where I am in the outline, okay? <laughs> you are not under law. Now, it's very important to understand what, what that's about because actually there are two ways to be under law. And this actually is G3 somewhere. If, if you can find the third page. Okay. On the third page, it's uh, G3. What, is the, what does Paul mean when he says you're not under law? Okay, um, two ways to be under law. First of all, there's the law code. The law code, remember that? The commandments we're supposed to obey, those written on the heart. Old Testament teachings that apply through it forever. New Testament teachings on how to be holy like God is holy. This is, this is law in terms of the law code that's part of our very nature. That the law code that we are obligated to obey forever. That does not change. You are under law in that sense. You're under your law code. So please, don't misunderstand. When Paul says you're not under law, he's not saying you don't have to obey any laws anymore. I've known people who said that. I had a, we had a student at school once who uh, said this out loud in a class. I won't tell you what happened after that. <laughs> um, but his, his whole idea was, uh, no, there is no law that applies to us anymore. We don't have to obey any laws. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not talking about the law code. And this is so important. This is something that I never heard taught. And I never read it anywhere. 
but it's my conclusion from studying what Paul is saying here. We are not under the law system of salvation. Because I've, I've talked about this. How can you be right with God under the, under the law system? Perfect obedience. But we're not under the law system. So forget that idea that somehow you can be right with God by how good you are. This is so important for Christians to understand. Because this is kind of built into our, our thinking. You are not accepted by God by how obedient you are to his laws, his law commandments. This is what Romans 3.28 means when it says we are justified by faith, namely by faith in what Jesus has done when he took our penalty upon himself on the cross. You're justified by faith. And then the next, this next part of that, apart from works of law. Works of law would be how you respond to your law commands. And that would include not just obeying your law commands, but sinning against your law commands. That's a work of law too. A work of law is how you handle the law commandments. And think of it this way, and sometimes we do think of it in terms of Judgment Day, that uh, God's keeping a record book. I don't know if this is true or not, but we think of it this way, and it helps us to get things straight in our minds. God's keeping a record book of every time you've obeyed His laws and every time you've sinned against them. Mm. Oh, my... Did you know that Paul says you're, you're not justified by what's in that book? You're not forgiven based on your works of law. You're forgiven if you have trusting in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. Now, does this mean we don't have to obey the law anymore? Oh no, don't, don't go there. The law as a law code is part of who we are. And we always have to obey it. And now as Christians, we have to obey it even more than before. Because we've got a new motive for obeying it. Love for our Savior. So this, this has, nothing to do, has nothing to do with your obligation to obey the law. as a law code. It's simply saying you're not under the law system as a way of getting to heaven. Do you get that? Do you see what I'm talking about? The law system is not the same as the law code. Alright. Here's the gospel. I tell you what, I didn't get started until five after because of that long introduction. <laughs> so I'm going to go to five after. The gospel is, number one, everybody's a sinner. 
Number two, no sinner can be saved under the law system. Number three, and here's the good news, God has provided an alternative to the law system. An alternative. Another way of being saved. And that's the grace system. I often put it this way. The word grace is used in three different ways in the Bible. Uh, grace is an attribute of God. He is grace. He is gracious. Grace is who he is. Grace is also what you receive when you're saved. It's the content of salvation. Talk about that in September. Or wait a minute. This is this is September. Talk about that in October. More of the content of salvation. But the third way that grace is used is right here in 614. That grace is a way of salvation. And it's a way that God introduced in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin entered. See, uh, if, if, there were, if there were never any sin among human beings, there would never be any grace. Because we wouldn't need it. Grace is God's response to sin. So if Adam and Eve had never sinned, none of his descendants, their descendants had ever sinned, there would never have been any grace. And you're thinking, oh, no, I don't think that. Because uh, you wouldn't need it. Grace and love are not the same thing. We would always have the love of God, but grace is what the love of God turns into when sin is present. And as soon as there was sin... God's grace faucet turned on and he was ready to forgive Adam and Eve and any of their descendants from that point on. Now you might say, well, if, if grace comes through Jesus, how could uh, grace be handed out in the Garden of Eden? Here's something you need to know about God. You do know it. Did you ever hear of the foreknowledge of God? Foreknowledge? God knows everything ahead of time that's going to happen. And especially he knows everything that he himself specifically has planned. And he had planned that Jesus would die on the cross for sins from even before the world was created. The New Testament teaches us that. So he knew. He knew that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. So he was already handing out the gift of forgiveness, justification, righteousness to anybody who would accept his offer of grace throughout the Old Testament. I could go on and say, uh, if, if sin never entered, there would never have been a Jesus. But when I say that, people want to stone me to death. So I, I, I'm not going to say that. Even though it's true, I'm not going to say it. What is it that makes the grace system possible? We're at the bottom of page three now. What makes the grace system possible? It is Jesus Christ. Go on to point C at the top of page four. We're almost done here. I said a while ago that the word grace is used to, to uh, represent the content of what God gives you when you're saved. 
And that content is often summed up as the double cure. Free of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath, that's justification. And make me pure, that's regeneration, which will be in October. We're going to talk about that next month. So the two things that come when you are saved, the two gifts that come are, first of all, justification. And what did I say is another word for justification? What? Forgiveness. Right, forgiveness. We, for some reason, we never use the word justified. How many of you people who lead in prayer in church service ever say, and justify us when you close your prayer? And justify us through Jesus' blood. We don't, we don't use that word for some reason, even though it's one of the most important words in the Bible. But we do use the word forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, we say. Justification is forgiveness. But it's more than just forgiveness of sins. It's forgiveness of you, the person. It's not just your sins that are forgiven. You are a forgiven person. Which means that when God looks at you right now, He does not see your sins. He knows they're there, but they're covered up by the blood of Jesus. And here's another passage, uh, uh, another quote. Um, yeah, I didn't include this. Oh, yes, I did. Another quote on page one. Toward the bottom, uh, Romans 4, 6 through 8. Here he's defining justification. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, this would be the blessing of justification, on the man to whom God credits righteousness, and that's another way of talking about justification, what righteousness is God crediting to you when you're saved? What? His righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus established on the cross. So here it is. David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Works of what? Law. Works of law. Apart from the works of law. Here's a quote from the Psalms. Now notice this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's what it means to be justified. He knows you're a sinner. He knows we've sinned. He knows every sin we've ever committed. But he's covered them up. Sometimes uh, we see this illustration or explanation of what it means to be forgiven. We think, God, yeah, he's written down all those sins in the book. Or, or just think of them being written down here on this board. If every sin you've ever committed were written on this board, how tiny would the writing have to be? But think about this. People say when you become a Christian, God takes an eraser and erases all those sins off. Until what? Until you sin again. Then he writes another sin on the board. Uh, 
Now you got to go through a ceremony to get that one erased. And now you're clean again. Until what? Until you sin again. Writes another sin up there. Until you go through some kind of forgiveness ceremony like, Lord, forgive me, I'm sorry. And it's erased. Now here's the deal. If I, if I understand David's, the quote Paul gives from David here, when you become a Christian, God does not erase your sins from the board. He covers up the board. The board is covered up. The sins are there. And maybe the sins you will commit today and tomorrow will be added. But he doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't look at them. I preached a sermon recently. Uh, I preached it 50 times over my life called the Robe of Righteousness. And I preached it out at uh, Greenville just a few weeks ago. This is from Isaiah 61.10. You need to look at this. Isaiah 61.10 where uh, the prophet Isaiah says, God has covered me with a robe of of righteousness. Folks, if you're a Christian, if you, and let's say if you're a Christian who still believes in Jesus, because you could lose your faith and this would all disappear. The board would be uncovered again and all your sins would be there. But if you're a, a believing Christian, right now you're wearing a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 your real spiritual clothes might be filthy rags, says Isaiah 64, verse 6, but they're covered up with the righteousness of Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ. I've got something here about how do you receive grace. Uh, that'll come up either next time or the next after. We'll go into that. But I'm going to stop now and uh, one of your uh, servants is going to come forward and somehow we're going to have a question and answer session. Uh, uh, he didn't tell me how long I had I could speak and answer to a question. <laughs> Let, let's see how it works. How do you want this to work, brother? It'll work however long it takes, I guess. <clears throat> the one thing that you'll notice with Jack is when you make a promise, he works under the law system at that point in time. So you got your hour and five more minutes. Uh-oh. <laughs> I need my robe of righteousness. <laughs> Questions that you might have. Anything that just kind of pops up. And we are recording, so don't, no cussing. Kind of like a fire hose, now you know what it's like being in this class. Sure, go ahead. What do you do with a letter that was written to the Gentiles in Acts 15? A letter written to the Gentiles in Acts 15, how's that fit? This is part of their law code. Uh, the specific things that applied to the Gentiles. We all have law commandments that we have to obey. That's part of our nature. And uh, those were 
the laws that were particularly important given the fact that most Christians at that time were Jews and they were having to accept these uh, Gentiles who were coming into the church. And so it was important that these Gentiles did not step over some of the important boundaries that the Jews kept. So uh, these were things that were relevant for that particular time and uh, I, I think uh, most of them, or I can't remember exactly all of them, but some of them were part of the regular moral law anyway. The one that raises the most question is about eating blood. And I, I've had Filipino students ask me that question because uh, blood is a favorite dish, <laughs> they tell me. So does this mean I can't eat uh, blood? And I, I try to tell them, you know, this was something that applied specifically in that time. And um, some, would, some would take it to be uh, an implication of uh, not eating strangled uh, uh, animals. And that would be part of the law of Moses, and this would be part of a way of... Uh, um, being kind to the Jews and not in, insulting them. When you get to Romans 15, 14 and 15 in, in your study, when will that be? November. November, okay. Uh, you'll see that Paul is talking there about uh, matters of opinion and how even if it's not wrong in itself, there are times when you have to go by this rule out of love for other people. So that to me would be one of the main ways I would speak to the, the difficult parts of that. And that, by the way, was one of my early students, Bill Custer, <laughs> William Custer. Anything else? Sure, yeah. Which translation are you using? That's a good question. <clears throat> I never use the New International Version in teaching. Um, I use one of two versions. This one is the New American Standard Bible, NASB. And there's been different editions of it. This one, I think, is the 1995 edition. Um, so I, I, I use that most of the time, but also the English Standard Version, the ESV. I like both of those. But I, I, I do not use the NIV because the very first time I used it in class was right after Professor Lewis Foster, who had had a hand in translating, I think, Luke and Acts, at least Acts, he was so excited when the new uh, when the NIV came out that he gave us all copies of it. And he, this is wonderful, the New Testament, the NIV New Testament. But I didn't read it ahead of time. I took it to class with me, and it, probably, it was either Doctrine of Man or Grace. And I, I was making my point about this particular issue. And uh, I said, this is what Paul says in this passage. And I looked at this passage in the NIV, and it didn't say that. <laughs> bad translation. So uh, 
I, I just <laughs> cast it aside. No, I, I still study out of it and refer to it a lot, but uh, and it's good to read. It's good to read it to study uh, or for devotions, but for serious study, uh, I, I don't use it. No, 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 no. You never think that about your question. And obedience to the law and grace be additive. Be what? Additive. Additive. So that people who are obviously obeying lots of the law and as much as anyone does, doing good works, in addition to grace, have a higher standing. Why stop at just the entry point here? Oh. Well, uh, what we're going to be studying later is that justification is something that happens right as soon as you're saved. And the other part of the double cure is regeneration and sanctification, which covers your whole life after that as you grow in grace and knowledge and you uh, learn to become more and more holy as God is holy. Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's our goal. It's always been our goal. And uh, God told the Jews, and Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 1, you be holy as I am holy, says God. And that's the goal we set as soon as we become Christians. And that's why we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to give us the power to, to work toward that goal. So, yeah, um, that's, the, that's the other part of grace. In addition to being forgiven of your sins, now, I, I, I think in my next outline I put it this way. Why is justification so important? The first part, the forgiveness part. Why is justification so important? Because being justified is the basis of your assurance of salvation. You know you're saved if you know you're justified. Now, that's because justification is a 100% thing. You are not just 80% justified. That would mean 80% uh, of your sins are forgiven and the other 20% tough luck. No, when you receive forgiveness or justification, that's 100%. And that's why you know you're saved. Romans chapter 5 is all about having assurance of your salvation. And let me see if that's not in here in this list. Uh, yeah, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Rather than being God's enemy, which he goes on to talk about later in that chapter, it says God uh, gave his son to die for your sins even while you were his enemies. But we're no longer his enemies. We're at peace with God. That's our assurance. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in hope. And hope is the New Testament word for assurance. Uh, when we use the word hope, like I hope I, I hope I win the readers, no, not reason, the publisher's clearinghouse. Barb and I both hope we win the publisher's clearinghouse. And I told her the other day I, that I told somebody at Greendale Church that when we win that, the first thing we're going to do is buy an elevator for the church. <laughs> I hope God heard that. <laughs> but anyway, that's justification. That's why justification is so important. It's why you have to know you're justified and believe that. You see, if, if, if you think you're justified by how good you are, you'll never really know you're saved. <coughs> Unless you're one of those Pharisees uh, who, who stood in the temple and thanked God that he was perfect. That's, he, he was an example of somebody who thought he would be saved by his law keeping. And who, what did the uh, tax collector say? God be merciful to me, the sinner. He was claiming God's grace. But anyway, the, the other part of the double cure is the gift of the Holy Spirit who in the very beginning, as soon as he comes in, changes our very nature from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And now we are able to obey the law. Let me tell you something. Uh, Romans 8 says the mind set on the flesh and this could still be a Christian who hasn't gone very far yet in his Christian life he could still be trumped by the flesh the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God it does not subject itself to the law of God it is not even able to do so. What's the alternative to having your mind set on the flesh according to that chapter 8 in Romans? Having your mind set on the spirit. Ah, because he's talked about having the gift of the spirit. And when you have the gift of the spirit, you are now able to obey the law. Whereas before, you were not. So, yes. Uh, um, what, what does Romans 6, 1 say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, that, 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 that's you right there. Well, I'm, I've got my justification. God's looking at me and saying, no penalty for you. So I'm just going to do all the sinning I want. And what's Paul's answer? Well, let me give you the Greek. Meganoitol. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the word, uh, that was a Greek expression that was meant to be the, the, the most emphatic denial that you could think. Like absolutely not or shut up, you crazy idiot. You know, I, I don't really say it that way. <laughs> it literally means may it never be. And some of the translations just put it like that. 
but it's it's an absolute denial. Paul, you see, Paul's uh, response to that question was, "You are an absolute idiot," <laughs> because that shows you don't really understand what salvation is all about. If you think that being saved by grace gives you license to sin, you don't get it. That grace is a double cure, not just one thing, not just the forgiveness of sin. It's also, and then he goes, to, he talks about baptism, doesn't he? This is where he says, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into what? His death. So then he says in the verse, in, I think it's verse 4, you've been baptized into death. Not just his death, but your own death. Your old sinful spirit was put to death and raised from the dead in that event. By the Holy Spirit who stays with us and gives us power to obey. I'll say more about this next time. Did I answer your question? <laughs> How does the term freedom in Christ then relate to this? Freedom in Christ? I think the first way it relates to Christ is that you are free from worry. That's the assurance. See, uh, the way I usually put it is, uh, freedom in Christ is not freedom from works. It's freedom from worry. Does that uh, make sense? It also means that you're free from the um, pressure of having, of thinking you have to be perfect to deserve to go to heaven and to, to actually, not just to deserve, but to actually assure, be assured that you're going to heaven. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of the worry. I'm not perfect. I, I feel like I have to be perfect. And it just keeps putting more and more pressure upon, uh, and you, you have freedom from that. A lot of the way the New Testament uses that, a lot of the way Paul uses that, is for people uh, who were converted from Judaism who thought they still somehow had to obey the law of Moses. And read the letter to the Galatians because he talks about how th this is where he really emphasizes freedom. Freedom from law keeping as a way of salvation. Whether it's the law of Moses or even the New Testament law commands. We're free from that. Yeah. Good question. Somebody didn't want to speak up, but they were wondering what you thought of the message version. And my question is, what kind of pushback did you get from churches and all when you really started grappling with this concept of grace? Okay. First question, I would never personally use the message. Okay. Uh, it's not a translation. If you want to talk about it, it's more of a commentary. Mm -hmm. And I don't think a very good one. Uh, it, it's radical. So uh, I'll just put it on the shelf. I've got one on the shelf, but I never, never really take it off. That's where it belongs. The other question is, uh, how, how is this message received? 
once in a while, um, I got people who pushed back. I was speaking on this subject at a church. It used to be churches had meetings like this where they'd invite all churches in the community and, and they'd have like six Tuesday nights. And I was doing one on Grace up in Washington Courthouse, Ohio, I think it was. And one night after, after one of the sessions, I don't know which one now, they said, the elders want to see you in this certain room. <laughs> uh, well, what the, there was one man who was sure that I was teaching once saved, always saved. And uh, he, he, was, he could not accept grace because he, he identified with that. So that was just a misunderstanding. I tried to explain, you know, so they did let me come back the rest of the time. Um, I can't think of too many cases like that. Almost always, the response has been marvelous. As people have told me, I don't know how many times, you changed my life. Excuse me. Thank you, Jack. Yes, thank you, Jack. And sometimes my ministry changed my ministry. And so, uh, I think that's probably 99 percent. That's wonderful. Something else to get my mind off that? <laughs> I guess one. If there's one more question, we can do it. Would you help me understand James 2:24? Man justified by work, uh -huh. not faith, not faith alone. Yes, the, the point, there are several ways to approach that, but the, the main point is, if you have a saving faith, you will also have works. Because faith works. Let me show you a passage on that. It's Galatians 5, uh, verse 6. Uh, Galatians, let me find it here. It's not hard to quote, it just says faith works through love. Uh, Galatians 5, yeah. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Now he's talking here to, about that issue I mentioned a while ago. People who thought, well, if, you, if you're a Jew and you become a Christian, you've got to stay with the Jewish laws. And if you become a Christian, you have to be, even if you're a Gentile, you have to be circumcised. He says, no, that's part of the old law. It doesn't mean anything anymore. But what really matters is faith working through love. So uh, what James is talking about is false faith. Now, does, does James say something about demons who believe? You see, there's a, there's a false faith, which is basically uh, partial faith. Because in the, in the New Testament, there are two aspects to faith. There's the believing that something is true. 
This is a judgment of your mind about the truth of statements like Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died for your sins. So that's one faith, one aspect of faith. It's called assent uh, to the truth of doctrine or teaching or statements. But the other aspect, that's not enough by itself, just to believe that these things are true. That's what the demons know and believe. They believe these things are true. But the other part of faith is believing in or on Jesus, the person. And when you do that, when you believe in Jesus, like John 3.16, whosoever believeth in him will not perish. When you believe on Jesus, that's Acts 16.30, believe on Jesus. When you believe in or on Jesus, you will do what he says. If you love me, you keep my commandments. It's, that's, that's what James is emphasizing. So it, the idea would be that on the day of judgment, works will be evidence that you have faith. You're justified by the faith directly. This is the way I explain it when I talk about James. And what James is saying is you're justified by your works, but it's an indirect justification because it's one step removed from the actual pronouncement, no penalty for you. It's an evidence that your faith is genuine. Pardon? Matthew 25. Oh, the people who are, uh, yeah, the sheep and goats. Yeah. yeah. I'll let you talk about that next time. <laughs> next time you're here. But uh, it's, I, I don't want to go, uh, law says I, I'm done. <laughs> Go ahead, Josh, one more. All right, um, my question is um, if, um, if uh, essentially we were able to live, you know, a perfect life and, you know, we were able to, you know, be reconciled to God through, through doing that, um, what role does, you know, the idea of original sin play in that? So we're living under the consequences of, of Adam's sin. You know, we, we, we live with the curses that were bestowed uh, as a result of that. Um, but that wasn't necessarily a law that personally I've broken, you know, but I'm living under the consequences of that. So how does that play into this? First of all, nobody is perfect, and nobody's going to be uh, reconciled to God if they haven't done anything to be reconciled about. But your question, real questions about original sin, here's the, I said a while ago, Romans 5, all about assurance of salvation. The doctrine of the classical doctrine of original sin uh, is picked from here and there in the Bible, but the main place that it comes from is Romans 5, 12 and following. Have you got to that yet? Mm. Yes. Hasn't come up yet? Anyway, uh, they say, this is where um, Paul says, in Adam this happened, but in Christ this happened. And, and all die in Adam, but you're raised. You're, you are, uh, uh, there's several things he says I'd have to look. But the Christian world in general has taken that to mean what Adam did affected the whole world. All of his descendants. What Adam did. And I believe, and I, this is another thing that I don't think I've got directly from anybody, 
But the, uh, the main point there is not what we got from Adam, but what we got from Christ. Let me look it up. Since you gave me time. I'm, I'm, <laughs> but this is in Romans 5. Um, like verse 15. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. So yeah, they're, they're, even though they're just one, Adam's just one. But death came to many as a result of that one. In fact, to all. But no problem because through Jesus, uh, the grace of God abounded to many. Uh, let me, verse 17. If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus. So then, uh, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, ah, the death of Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. What is Paul teaching there? Original sin? No. Original grace. This is my term one. He's not saying everybody's born in original sin because of Adam. That leaves out half of what Paul says. And it leaves out the big half. Because the other half is, yeah, it's true. What Adam did had the potential of bringing all these things to all of his descendants. But as a matter of fact, the death of Christ on the cross, the one act of righteousness resulted in a removal of everything that would have come upon babies if he hadn't done it. But Jesus has already taken away original sin. Nobody is born in original sin. You, you were born in original grace. That is, you were born redeemed. Your baby is born redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just your baby, but the babies of Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and pagans. All children come into the world under the blood of Jesus Christ until they get to the age of accountability and come become aware of the law written on their heart and uh, awareness of God and nature and so on. Romans, Romans 1, 18 and following. Did that help? Um, when you get to Romans 5, 12 and following, every question will be asked. <laughs> yeah, I, I meant that for you to answer. I jumped over it. So. Ah, okay. We're going right to Romans 6. <clears throat> so this week when I talk about Romans 6, and I get to uh, good grace abound. You need to all shout out what word? See, tell me. Megan or tall? All right, you guys have Megan or tall. I'll hear that. That'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks, Jack, for that time. Um, I just have some of the Saved by Grace books in the back uh, at 850.
and uh, the, those questions you may want to be reading ahead and, and just ask, asking some questions of the text as he's writing along. Next time we come together, October the 8th, and uh, we'll be looking at the latter part of that uh, chapter 1 through 8 as we continue on being under grace. And uh, write down your questions, keep the outline, maybe some questions you'll say, no, from that October, that September meeting, I got this question still. Um, yeah, just, just because it's a different meeting doesn't mean you can't ask the question, right? Let's pray together and we'll send you home. Father, we thank you for this evening and thank you for your work. It's just as if we've never sinned and just as if we paid the penalty, you paid our penalty, Lord, thank you. And now as we go from this place, may we give, uh, just give words to the, to the song of the gospel and what great news it is. May we share it with others and encourage them to follow along Jesus too, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Let's, Thanks again, Jack. Let's do one more thing. Right. Sing a song. <clears throat> I am not under law. I'm under grace. It was grace that rescued me. It was grace that set me free. I have sought, I have found a hiding place. I am not under law. I am under grace. Sing it with me and then we'll go. <laughs> I am not under law. I'm under grace. It was grace that rescued me. It was grace that set me free. I have sought, I have found a hiding place. I am not under law, I am under grace. <laughs> I learned that from a student who was Seventh-day Adventist. It was in their hymn book. There you go. Thanks, Jack. I don't know how to get this off. I'll get it. <laughs> get it? Okay. Yeah. No, we'll put them online. Yeah. So you get them. You can get them through the app, the White Oak app. It'll be the media part of the app. Oh, if you're familiar with that? Do you have the app yet?
dog tomorrow? I guess that's the story. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you there. I'm trying to decide if I want you to come down to Camp Washington one of these times. That's fine. I'm fine with, with that. this bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> let's, meet, let's meet at Camp Washington. Can we do that? Right, the chili? chili place? Yeah. yeah, I can do that. All right, I'll see you there. There's one thing I want you to tell us. If I had your degree, I would not be saying, and did, I would tell what it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> Master of Divinity, gotcha. Okay. okay. For some reason, this thing's not turning off. So you can turn it off. Yeah, you can do it right here. Oh, okay. <laughs> We just sold the last one. So, uh, we're going to have more at the, at the hub on Sunday. We'll have them at the hub on Sunday. So, I'm going to go buy 10 more. That'll probably cover it's just a recording device. Yeah. You know, I bought one of those. Somebody suggested it in my class. I never could figure out how to work it. Oh, yeah. We'll grab some more. So, we, this is the microphones that the preacher You can order it at. I'm going to get some more. I'll, get, I'll have a Sunday at the hub. Yeah. Tell him, sir. Oh, I was going to tell you, our group was going to start experiencing God. Oh, that's great. I love so, that book. We went, one of our couples is going to be gone for two or three weeks. Have you done it before? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it was one of the life. I've had three or four things that stand out more than others. Things, events, processes that messed me up in a good way. That was one. <laughs> it was just like, when I finally got it, it's like, holy smoke. And we would be willing, we need a home, we would be willing to need a church if there's others that are interested. So I don't know how you would promote that or... I'll have more for Sunday at the hub. At the hub? At the hub. I'll have some more Sunday, yep. Yeah. Um.